Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Molecule is not like any other mattress in a box. Their sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It has six times the airflow of my old mattress, so it keeps me cool all night. It has zone reflex layers that adjust with me in all my weird sleep positions. And it's antimicrobial. And if Russell Wilson sleeps on a molecule and calls it his best sleep ever, who am I to argue? Go to onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED. Again, save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED at onmolecule.com. You're listening to Part 2 of Unexplained Season 6, Episode 2, Valleys of the Uncanny. The rain hammered down onto the windscreen of Alan's patrol car as the wipers struggled to keep up. With one eye on the road ahead, he brushed away the condensation building up on the inside of the screen as one after another, the streetlights passed by in soft orange bursts of refracted light. He'd not been on duty long when the call came in from a resident of a local estate just off Burnley Road in the northwest of Todmorden, complaining about a small herd of cows running amuck in the area. Alan was just passing the railway station and Tomlin's coal yard beyond, where Zygmunt Adamski's body had been found five months ago when a second call came in. Another resident had seen the cows too, moving about the estate. So it was with some surprise when Alan arrived there around 11pm to find the streets completely deserted. Confused, he made a few rounds of the interweaving cul-de-sacs, but saw little save for the odd dog walker and the occasional flicker of movement in the light behind loosely drawn curtains. After completing another circuit, it slowly dawned on him that he was most likely responding to some prank calls. 
Doing his best to see the funny side of it, Alan headed back to the station. He'd not been there long when yet another call came in from the estate, again complaining about the cows. Only this time it was from an elderly resident who'd clearly been perturbed by what she'd seen. With nothing for it, Alan headed back out to the estate. It had just gone midnight when he pulled into the estate again to find the streets just as empty as before. Shaking his head, he pulled up outside the caller's house and stepped out into the freezing night air. The elderly woman smiled as she opened the door and bade him into the house. Over a cup of tea, she explained that she'd been sleeping in her bedroom upstairs when she first heard the strange noises coming from outside. Peering out of her curtains, she was amazed to see five or six cows wandering aimlessly about the street. After shuffling downstairs, she made the call to the police station and opened the curtains to describe what she could see. And that's when it happened, she said. When what happened? asked Alan. The woman hesitated for a moment, seeming a little unsure about what she was going to say. When I saw the light, she replied. I'm sorry, said Alan. As she went on to explain, she was just looking out at the cows when a fierce, blinding light burst out from nowhere and swept across the house. The next moment, everything had gone dark again and the cows had completely vanished. Alan thought for a moment. Perhaps it was just a car, he suggested coming up over the rise towards the woman's home and had simply scared off the cows. Perhaps it had even been his car or one of his earlier trawls around the estate, which would explain why the cows were always gone by the time he got there. But the woman wasn't sure. With little else to add, Alan thanked her for the tea and agreed to make one final sweep of the estate before heading back to the station. But yet again... There was no sign of the cows. The rain had stopped by the time Alan headed out for his final patrol round the town. After leaving the station with a colleague about 5am, he jumped into his car and headed straight for the town centre. Travelling south down Burnley Road, he passed the staff bus for the local bus crews heading the other way, giving the driver a wave as he went. After arriving in town a few minutes later, he asked a colleague who was out on foot patrol if they fancied joining him for one last look around, but they declined, leaving Alan to head back out on his own. Still determined to locate the errant cows, he decided to make his way back up Burnley Road to see if he could find them. The bare skeleton lines of crooked black trees loomed over the empty streets as Alan made his way back toward the estate, the patrol car's headlights shimmering off the slick, wet surface as it went. At 5.15am, he approached the south end of Centre Vale Park, a local beauty spot and popular sports hub backed by a thin stretch of woodland opposite the turn-off for the estate. Alan flicked his right indicator light on and prepared to make the turn. Meanwhile, not 200 metres away to the north, at roughly the same time, 
Leonard Smith, the caretaker at Fernie Lee Junior School, was making his way across the playground when he caught sight of something moving through the sky. It was hard to be sure in the dark, but it seemed to have risen straight up from Burnley Road. Leonard watched as it zigzagged for a moment through the sky, before eventually shooting off at incredible speed. About 45 minutes later, around 6am, PC Malcolm Agley was just preparing to head home when he was startled by a car pulling up suddenly outside the police station. He watched with alarm as a pale and shocked-looking Alan wound down the window and told him to get in immediately. Malcolm was a little hesitant at first, seeing as he was about to finish his shift, but he couldn't resist the urgency in Alan's voice. Malcolm jumped in and demanded to know what was going on. Alan's story didn't disappoint. Alan spoke as they headed northwest up Burnley Road, his words tumbling out breathlessly, one after the other. He explained about his plan to go and look for the cows, and was just about to turn off the road to head back to the estate, when he was suddenly distracted by a large object that looked as though it had jackknifed across the road, a hundred yards ahead of him. Having assumed it was the staff bus he'd seen earlier, he quickly realised it couldn't have been, as he'd passed them by on a spot further up, earlier in the night. But more than that, this thing was about twice the size. After driving straight past the turn-off, Alan had drawn closer to inspect the bizarre object, all the while trying to comprehend exactly what it was he was looking at. As he got to within 30 feet of it, he realised with utter bemusement that it was, improbably, hovering about 5 feet in the air above the road. At about 20 feet away, he stopped the car, unable to do little more than stare in complete disbelief. It was matte black in colour, like dull gunmetal, and shaped like a huge diamond, with a single light shining out at the top of it. Across the upper section, he could just about discern a series of panels, a little lighter in shade than the main body, which he took to be blacked-out windows. He thought for a moment if it was a hot air balloon, then soon realised it was clearly something far more solid. Movement on the road drew his eyes to a strange swirl of dead leaves and twigs that were dancing and circling about the object. The branches of the trees either side of it were swaying too. It was then that Alan realised the thing was spinning, drawing the autumnal detritus in with its movement. Without thinking, Alan instinctively switched on the police lights, immediately bathing the craft in an eerie blue shade, then grabbed for the radio clipped to his chest. Alan pressed the button to talk, but the radio did not respond. Throwing it down in frustration, he then tried the car's VHF radio, but it too was completely dead. Alan cursed his luck and looked about, not quite sure what to do next. Catching sight of his clipboard, he pulled it from the inside of the door and quickly began to sketch the object. Then out of nowhere, he suddenly found himself staring straight ahead with his hands gripping the steering wheel as the car trickled slowly down the road in first gear. 
As Alan continued to explain to Malcolm, he then quickly slammed on the brakes and looked about for any sign of the object, but there was nothing but the empty road ahead and behind him. Completely bewildered as to what had just happened, Alan made a quick 180 and headed back down the road. Parking up just where he thought he'd seen the strange craft, he stepped out onto the road and felt a strange static charge in the air as he made his way to the precise spot. He looked down in amazement at the tarmac, where all about was still wet from the night's rain. Here, the road was completely dry. Malcolm didn't know what to say as he scanned Alan's face for any signs of a joke, but saw none. Then Alan pointed up ahead and pulled the car over to the side of the road. There, he said, that's where I saw it. Alan and Malcolm each grabbed a torch and stepped out of the car. All about was silent save for the distant chirp of robins and the sound of the wind rattling the trees as they made their way to the spot. Alan shone his torch into the road, spotlighting a large patch of it that was strangely dry, while surrounding it, as Malcolm noticed, was a peculiar circular pattern of leaves. Malcolm bent down and put his hand to the tarmac, his breath clearly visible in the chill morning air. He stared up at Alan with a look of bafflement on his face. It's warm, he said. Alan leant down to touch it too. Well, I'll be, he said. Then Alan turned his attention to the entrance of Centervale Park, just a little further up the road, and wondered aloud if perhaps any early morning dog walkers were about that might have seen the strange object too. The pair of them decided to take a look, and quickly made their way across the small bridge overrunning a gully between the park and the road, and then on toward the main gate. Finding it locked, they climbed over and carried on into the park, flashing their torchlights as they went. After a few more steps, Alan noticed a number of large, dark shapes moving about on a distant playing field. Holding up his torch, he revealed right in front of them roughly half a dozen cows, the very ones Alan had been searching for all night. It took me a long time to realise that it isn't the bed or even the mattress necessarily that makes for the perfect sleeping experience, it's the sheets. I might not be sure of much in life, but this I can guarantee you. That feeling when you get home from a stay at your parents' house or a night at a fancy hotel if you're so lucky, and your bed just doesn't feel the same. I'm telling you now, it's the sheets. Recently I was lucky enough to get a set of sheets from Ball and Branch, and if it wasn't for the fact that I have to wash them from time to time, I'd never take them off. But as it happens, incredibly, they get even softer with every wash. Buttery soft and lightweight in 100% organic cotton sateen weave, Bolland Branch sheets are also made with toxin-free processes and fair trade certification to ensure workers are paid fair living wages. To experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Bolland Branch. You can try them worry-free for 30 nights with free shipping and returns, and my listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code UNEXPLAINED 
at bollandbranch.com. That's bollandbranch, B-O-L-L, and branch.com. Promo code unexplained. After getting back to the station, a quietly stunned Alan managed to track down the owner of the cows, a farmer from the opposite side of the valley. The man was at a complete loss to explain how they'd escaped. As for how they'd ended up in the park, everyone was stumped. If they had been roaming about the estate that Alan visited earlier, unless they took an inordinately long way round, they would have had to have crossed the gully and got over the locked gate to get in. Later that morning, relieved to be home, Alan removed his shoes at the door, then noticed the sole of his left shoe of a relatively new pair of sturdy Doc Martins was completely split from one side to the other. It was then he felt the itch on the inside of his left foot. He pulled down his sock and saw it was red and irritated. Thinking little of it, however, he applied some cream to soothe it, then went to bed, yearning for sleep. By the following night, the story of Alan's apparent experience was all they could talk about at the station. With the jokes coming thick and fast, Alan did his best to laugh them off, while continuing to wrestle with what on earth he'd seen. When suddenly, he was given a message to report to the station inspector. Expecting a dressing down for concocting such a ludicrous story, he was surprised to find the inspector intrigued to know more about what he'd seen. After Alan relayed his story once again, the inspector thought for a moment, then consulted a notebook on his desk. It was then that the inspector told Alan about what the three officers had seen the week before while out looking for stolen motorbikes. Though the inspector wasn't quite sure what to make of it all, it had evidently given him pause for thought. After thanking Alan for his time, he suggested he complete an incident report and submit it to the chief superintendent based in Halifax, and they would take it from there. As Alan would later claim, despite murmurings of UFOs and extraterrestrials, he refused to jump to any such conclusions. Later that night, Alan headed back to the estate to figure out how the cows could possibly have ended up in the park over the road. As he drove up into the estate, he caught sight of the elderly woman's house he visited the night before, realising with a jolt that it wasn't even remotely in line with his headlights. Whatever the light was that she saw, it wasn't the headlights of a car. As Alan's story spread through the town, it wasn't long before he was contacted by the local paper with a request to interview him about his apparent sighting of what was now being described as a UFO. After asking for permission to recount his story, it was eventually published on Friday 5th of December in the Hebden Bridge Times, under the headline, May the Force Be With You, with all the inevitable mickey-taking that came with it. A few months later, Alan was informed that he'd be leaving his post in Todmorden to be placed instead in the nearby village of Walston. It was hard not to feel that this was in some way due to the embarrassment caused to the force by the article, despite Alan's claims that he'd been granted permission to give the interview. All the while, 
That itchy mark on the inside of his left foot continued to irritate him. After eventually consulting a doctor about it, it was diagnosed as a mild form of psoriasis. It was around this time that Allen was contacted by Detective Chief Inspector Norman Collinson from the fraud squad of the Greater Manchester Police. As it happened, Collinson was also a member of the Manchester UFO Research Association. Collinson and some of his colleagues at the UFO group were keen to interview Allen about his unusual experience, having been particularly enthused by his position as a well-respected local police officer. Feeling he had nothing to lose and keen to find some answers himself, Allen agreed to it. As Collinson later explained, he too had once seen a UFO, as had Harry Harris, a local solicitor who accompanied Collinson to Allen's house to conduct the interview the following week. A few weeks later, Norman got back in touch with some intriguing news. After going over the interview again, he'd noticed some time discrepancies in Allen's recounting of the event. After taking it on himself to travel the exact same route that Allen took back on that bizarre night, he came to the startling conclusion that 30 minutes were missing between Allen seeing the object and meeting Malcolm outside the police station. He wasn't sure what it meant exactly, but there was something he thought they could try, if Alan was willing, to see if it might help him remember more about what actually happened that night. On Sunday, August 2nd, 1981, Alan found himself making his way to Manchester to the home of psychologist and hypnotherapist Professor Robert Blair. Norman and Harry, along with another colleague from their UFO group, were there to greet him, looking forward to sitting in on the session. However, Professor Blair, who'd not been informed why exactly Alan was coming, was adamant that only Alan be in the room. Disappointed, the men agreed to wait outside as Blair led Alan into his office and invited him to take a seat on the consultation bench. Alan sat down, then leant back on the bench, only for Professor Blair to tell him it wouldn't be necessary. Alan smiled, a little embarrassed, then sat back up, placing his hands on his lap. Then Professor Blair told him to close his eyes. The professor spoke in soft, simple words, while Alan sat and listened, not quite sure what he was supposed to do, as all the while... Blair's voice got quieter and quieter, as if retreating to some distant place, when Alan suddenly felt a dull pain in his head. He opened his eyes and apologised to Blair for wasting his time. The professor smiled. Alan had been under hypnosis for an hour. After the session... Alan watched as Norman and Harry listened eagerly to whatever Professor Blair was telling them. As it transpired, Blair had been forced to cut the session short after Alan became suddenly distressed, and though he wouldn't divulge exactly what Alan had said, he was left with the overriding sense that, as Alan would later put it, something very weird had happened to him. A second appointment was arranged with a separate hypnotherapist, 
this time a Dr. Joseph Jaffe, to see if Alan's story would be consistent. On this occasion, Norman and Harry were allowed to film the session. With more sessions booked, Alan was kept in the dark about what exactly he'd said, in the hope of keeping any outside influence to a minimum. Not long after the second session, however, it appeared that something had clearly been unlocked deep within his mind. It began with headaches on the drive home, followed by a sudden bout of nausea. After being so overwhelmed with tiredness, Alan was forced to pull into a service station and sleep it off before finally making it back to his house. Things only got worse as a wave of nausea washed over him the moment he got through the door. After just about making it to the bathroom to vomit, he was finally able to clamber into bed. And that was when the nightmares came. It started with an undulating, ominous drone, rising and falling in pitch, followed by the emergence of a distorted, ghostly image. A strange, wiry figure, no more than three feet tall, with a large, bulbous head and enormous, black, elliptical eyes. It leered over Alan, drawing its face closer and closer to his, coming more and more into focus, until Alan woke up with a start. After a few more recorded sessions, each followed by bouts of nausea and nightmares, Alan was finally invited to watch them back. It was sometime in late September that he was invited over to Harry Harris's home, where he was joined by Norman and a number of other Manchester Euphora affiliates. After exchanging a few pleasantries and some cups of tea, the group moved into the living room and took their places in front of the TV as Harry set about lining up the tape. After warning Alan to steal himself for what he was about to see, Harry switched off the lights, then turned to the video player and pressed play. A large close-up of Alan's face flickered onto the screen, his brow furrowed and his eyelids lightly shut. In the background, the quiet rhythmic beep of a heart monitor could be heard, Alan watched, a little self-conscious to see himself in such a way, as on screen he began recounting the story of that peculiar night. All of it he had knowingly said himself a million times before, right up until the moment the story changed. Although Alan had no memory of stepping out of his car, according to the story he was now telling on screen, that is exactly what he did. Alan looked on speechless as his hypnotised self elaborated further. After stepping out of the car, he was apparently approaching the craft when a blinding light flashed out at him. Alan watched aghast as on screen he threw up his arms as if he were right back in the moment, shielding his eyes from the light. Then the beep of the heart monitor began to speed up. Dr Jaffe asked if they should stop, but Alan with his eyelids still closed, continued. Next, there was a tremendous whoosh, he said, after which he found himself floating inside the object. They're horrible, he continued, small, three to four feet, like five-year-old lads. There are eight of them. He's touching me. He's feeling at my clothes. 
They have hands and heads like a lamp. They keep touching me. Joseph. I know him as Joseph. He has told me not to be frightened. They are robots. They're not human. They're robots. They are Joseph's robots. It seemed they were experimenting on him, he said, or running some kind of test. Then one of the entities placed a bracelet on his right wrist and left foot, as Alan later noted, where that strange mark had apparently appeared on his foot. On screen, Alan cried out in pain, evidently distressed by the memory of it all, and Dr Jaffe brought the session to a close. Then Harry stopped the tape and flicked on the lights to reveal a pale-faced Alan, still staring at the screen. As Harry explained, it was the same in all the sessions, the story not deviating once in any way. It has been many years since those strange events that occurred in Todmorden and the surrounding valleys back in 1980, yet despite the passing of time, Alan's story has never wavered. In 2017, Alan published a full account of the events in his book, Who or What Were They?, which is available to buy online. As he writes, having resisted the UFO angle at first, he eventually began delving into abduction stories such as those of Betty and Barney Hill, to see if he might find any parallels with his own experience. Having never himself claimed he was abducted, today he mostly wonders if it had all just been a figment of his imagination. In subsequent years, while some have claimed that Sigmund Adamski may well have been the victim of an alien abduction, a little more light was shed on his mysterious death after an anonymous caller spoke to a staff member of a UFO magazine, claiming that someone linked to Adamski's family had abducted him and kept him prisoner in a garden shed. When Sigmund tried to escape, as the man claimed, he was burned by battery acid, which explained the unusual marks on his head. As for how he died exactly, the caller couldn't say. The man who hurt him, the caller alleged, might have had something to do with Adamski's goddaughter, who was due to be married the day after he disappeared. Others have said that the estranged husband of a woman who was staying with the Adamskis at the time may in fact have had something to do with it, possibly being the same man the mystery caller was alluding to. It was also claimed that Adamski was undergoing a series of moxibustion treatments at the time, which involved igniting cotton wool balls soaked in alcohol, and then cupping the skin over them, which, if true, may also have accounted for the peculiar marks. In 2003, James Turnbull, the coroner who conducted the inquest into Adamski's death, revealed to the BBC that it was the biggest mystery in all his career, stating that the question of where he was before he died and what led to his death just could not be answered, believing also, as he said, that the failure of the forensic scientists to identify the corrosive substance which caused Mr Adamski's burns could lend some weight to the UFO theory. In 2008, retired police officer John Hansen and UFO researcher David Sankey made a request for the original coroner's file from Adamski's inquest but were refused access to it on account of not being interested parties, whatever that means. As such, 
Zygmunt Jan Adamski's death is a mystery that remains to this day unexplained. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.